If you're wondering why the slide says a cloud of witnesses, I'm trusting that's what it says. And if you know the book of Hebrews, you know that's not in chapter 11. It's in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's next week. <laughs> but when the writer talks about, you guys know how I am about context. It's always, always, always about context. A, a text without a context is a con. I love that ditty. It's something I learned back in Bible school and it served me well, and it serves you well to understand and to pay attention to context. So in Hebrews, the writer says, we're therefore, when we see the word therefore, we say it refers back to what's just been said. So what we're looking at this morning is the cloud of witnesses that's referenced in chapter uh, as I prayed about, well, you know, what do you want me to call this message? And, and I just sensed this is the cloud of witnesses. That's where we're at. Uh, this is that cloud of people. Very different people here in chapter 11. Very different circumstances. As we have looked, this is the sixth study that we've had in Hebrews 11. And the Lord willing, we'll finish it this morning. I pray we don't run too far over. That's a morning. Um, uh, they had one thing in common. All of the people we've been looking at, the people we'll look at today, they walked by faith. They trusted God. That's the writer's point. Remember, again, the context, the, 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 the greater context in Hebrews is the, the Hebrew first century where their life was hard. It was hard. Man, they had a lot of trials. They had a lot going on. And some of them were walking away. And, and, and the writer's going, no, 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 that's not the answer. It's not to go back to Judaism. We looked at that. Judaism, for all practical purposes, didn't exist anymore. The Messiah had come and he had, the new covenant had replaced the old. When we look at this, we're saying, all right, he wrote to those people and, and he shared all of these people's stories in, in, in chapter 11 here. And, and we need to be careful that we don't take too distant to look at this and look at this as well. That's these Bible people. If we neglect to look at this as they are just regular, normal, everyday, Totally. This is directly applicable to every believer. It is absolutely pertinent that we understand what walking by faith is. It's not just believing in God. It's believing God. It's trusting God. It's understanding that I have the opportunity now to let the weight of my life, trials included, failures included. All of these people we're looking at, most of them had, some of them had horrific failures. And yet I come and I let the weight of my life down on Jesus. And that's what trusting God is. It's not just mental assent. So as we look at this, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't take a distant view. Understand that this is written to regular, normal, everyday people. This is written about everyday, regular, normal people. 
and it applies to me. It applies to you. So as I prayed this morning, it's just been on my heart in preparation for this, that we could put this on and not just have it be in the abstract, but have it be real, have the, the application, the lessons here be real and, and applied to our lives individually. With that in mind, have you ever had, and, and I know this is a rhetorical question because we all have, ever, you ever had moments where you, you think, I don't know where this is going, I don't know what's happening, I don't know how much more I can handle, I just, I really don't know how much more of this I can take. We've all had that, haven't we? There's a, a popular saying out there, and mostly in the world, but with some with Christians, and, and, and I understand what people intend by it, but when people say, God will never give you more than you can handle, my response to that is as respectfully as I can, can say, want to bet? <laughs> he will constantly, continuously give you more than you can handle because he's driving you to reliance on him. How does that come about? By faith. By trusting that God has this, and therefore I can rest. Therefore I can put my trust in him, and the fact that he's going to work through this, and as a believer, I can absolutely know. This is not, when we talk about hope, it's not hope-so-hope, it's no-so-hope. It's the kind of hope that comes from saying, God, I, I have looked at your past Faithfulness in my life, I use that as a down payment on the fact that the future is in your hands. That's what the writer's doing here. He's reaching back. Remember, he's reached in these six days, he's gone all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the creation, all the way back to Cain and Abel. Remember, it starts there. And then he's worked through the Old Testament and, and person by person looking at the patriarchs. And then last week looking at Moses and, and looking at different ones. Talking about the fact that just by the fact that their names are listed here in this great faith chapter, that, that they were counted as faithful, even though, like I said, they were just regular people. We've talked about that, talked about the great comfort that we get from understanding that no, God's not endorsing sin. He does recognize faith and faithfulness. So as we finished last week, we looked at uh, the fact that, that it ended with Moses. And then we started, or we looked at verse 29, where the writer goes from the specific, specific individuals, and then he goes to the general. He starts to talk about Israel. Uh, the, the they in verse 29 is indicating the children of Israel. And in 1129, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. So the Lord pointed out that the faith of the children of Israel, uh, that they had to trust God in order to get through the Red Sea. They had the desert, mountains on the other side, the sea in front of them, and the Egyptian army hot on their heels behind them. They had one option. God, are you going to pull this off? Uh, and yeah, we know that they griped and complained and they murmured and all of that. That's kind of 
typical of Israel and, and some of us too. But the point is, is that they had, God had specifically brought them to that point. It wasn't that God woke up that morning and went, oh my gosh, I forgot about the children of Israel or my me. I forgot about, you know, he didn't, it wasn't that way. He specifically allowed them to get to that point. Why? It was more than they He's driving them to reliance upon him. And that reliance would be employed by faith, by simply trusting, by coming to a point of saying, I don't know how this is going to go. And so we see very early on in Israel's history, that's what God was doing. We'll talk more about that as we go. Uh, but uh, when I look at that and, and I think, Lord, look at the times in my life where I don't know how you're going to do this. Things on my plate now. Lord, I don't know how you're going to work it out. And I have a choice at that point. I can walk around being all stressed out and grumpy about it. Or I can say, you know, Lord, you've got this. And allow the fruit of his spirit to manifest in my life. Joy. In the middle of hard stuff. That's why I've shared with you guys before, and I'll share it with you again, and I'll share it in the future. I can't change your circumstances, but I can show you where to find the grace to live well, really well within them. And that's the difference. That's what divides us from the world, from people that are walking around at the effect of the circumstances, at the effect of the trials, at the effect of the pressures, at the effect of the pain. And why Christians, as we, again, as we rest in him, that his spirit produces the fruit Faithfulness is one of the fruit of the Spirit, mentioned there in Galatians chapter 5. So, as we look at this, Moses trusted God. The visible proof of his faith, remember, now faith produces works. We've talked about that. It's not just faith, empty faith. It's faith will produce a response. It will produce something, an action in me. What did Moses do when God told him, I'm going to divide the sea. He said, lift up your staff, lift up, lift up your rod. When he did that, he was showing the people of Israel what? It wasn't a magic trick. It wasn't that the rod was going to part the sea. He was showing, he was demonstrating his faith in God, what God had said by being obedient to what he had told him to do. Lift up your staff and the, st- the sea will part. Moses didn't part the sea. The staff didn't part the sea. God parted it, but there was God's part and Moses' part. Walking by faith includes God's part and my part. And that's a consistent theme throughout the word of God. So as he trusted God, the visible proof, proof of his faith became real to the people. Uh, because faith is contagious. Uh, and You know, that's part of why we gather. We build one another up. Because when we get out there in the world, the world tends to tear us down. And so... We want to have our faith enlarged. We want to be stronger in faith. And all of us are growing because all of us have strongholds. All of us have issues. All of us are broken in ways. And we're utterly reliant on the grace of God. And God wants to, to continually do a work in us. That's why you can be 18 or 80. And you're still growing in your relationship with the God, with God. You're still growing as He reveals new things to your heart. The other thing I want to say about that, faith is contagious, but unbelief is also contagious. 
In the book of Numbers, we see where Israel, by faith, got through the Red Sea here in Hebrews. But in the book of Numbers, it says that they didn't go into the land of Canaan. Why? Because of unbelief. The antithesis of faith. I don't really believe that God could do it. That's what they said. And remember, the spies went into the land, and when they came back out, they said, well, you know, there's giants in the land. And and then they began to exaggerate. Well, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. We could never do this. And what does it say in the the book of Numbers? It says that the people lifted up their voices and they wept. It was contagious. The whole camp began to go to this faithless place of saying, you know what? We can't trust God. Why did you lead us out here to die, God? That's what they say. So be careful, folks. You know... (laughs) A great illustration that I love is that you can never put a white glove on your hand and dip it into muddy water and expect the water to get whiter. It doesn't happen. That's kind of how walking by faith is. When we surround ourselves with people, guess what? It's always the Christian who compromises. Because what God wants to do is have us build into our culture, have us spill over into our culture, not be influenced by it. And as we walk by faith, as we trust him, our lives are different. We look different. We act differently. We make different decisions when our trust is in the one with whom we have to do, in the one who our life is centered on. When we start walking in unbelief, See other people around, well, yeah, I knew that wouldn't work out. Well, yeah, I know that that's, and, and you know, it just, it, it's a slippery slope. It's like dipping that white glove in a muddy water. You can't expect it to get whiter, but you can simply choose to walk by faith with whatever it is that you're dealing with. So they came out by faith, but they didn't go in to the land because of unbelief. And all of those people in that day died in the wilderness. He said, anybody over the age of 20, I would have liked to have been a teenager in that day. Anybody over the age of 20, you won't go in. You don't believe that I can do this? Fine. I'm not going to do it. But he did lead the, the children of Israel in after that. Excuse me, their sons and daughters. So in verse 30 we read, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Now, understand here, I, I know I don't need to say this, but I always look at this and I kind of chuckle. He's not talking about the faith of the walls. <laughs> By faith the walls of Jericho fell down. Yeah. <laughs> but you got to understand some things about Jericho. Jericho was a frontier city. It was a, on the frontier. It was It's in the Jordan Plain. You know, if you start at the Mediterranean Sea, you were Tel Aviv and all of that, Joppa back then, uh, and then you go up to the mountains, and that's where Jer- Jerusalem is, and you drop down the other side, it's called the Jordan Rift, Rift or the, the, yeah, I'm not going to get into the geography lesson, but anyway, Jericho's down on the bottom, and, and so it was on the frontier, it was, it was actually a defensible position for people that wanted to come into Canaan. And when Israel crossed over into Canaan, they went to a place called Gilgal, and the Bible tells us in Joshua that Gilgal was tucked right up against Jericho. So, uh, when we look at this, it would be the first conquest that Israel did going into the land. And they did not have a well-assembled, well-oiled machine for an army. 
It was sort of a ragtag bunch back at that point. And yet they were utterly reliant upon that they would in, enjoy and they would they would see what happened when they took things into their own hands too we're not going to i would love to go there that's a, a big rabbit trail for me because i love the the whole history there but they would find out what happened when they didn't walk by faith again the whole thing was walking by faith for the children of israel god would lay it out and he'd say you can do it my way or you can do it your way my way will be good your way will probably end in disaster and that's the choice. It's the choice we have too. So what God did, he revealed his plan to Joshua. He said, now Joshua, I want you to get your army together and I want you to grab the priests and I want you to go to the city Jericho and I want you to walk around it once a day for six days and I want your priests to toot their horns. They had ram's horn trumpets is what they call them. Uh, shofars, have you ever heard of shofar? Uh, yeah, anyway, so I want you to, you guys, and, and don't do anything, don't, you know, don't get hostile, but just walk around the city and have the priests blow their horns and the army can just walk around. And they did that for, now tell me that any general that you gave those instructions to wouldn't look at you as though you were absolutely gone. I mean, he gives them a weird command. I mean, I remember one time, and I, I have to share this, uh, I was in a men's retreat uh, at the church I came from in Northern California. There was a whole bunch of us guys there, and, and Bob, the senior pastor, went home on Saturday night, and, and Brad, the other associate pastor, and I, we were we were the cut-ups. And, and there was an African-American worship troupe at the same conference center that we were staying at, and all these ladies, and it was all these uh, black ladies, and they said, y'all want to come and worship with us tonight? And we said, well... Yeah, sure. Why not? And so we did. And, and and it was like, man, we had a Holy Ghost hoedown. I'm telling you, <laughs> it was so much fun. We ended up doing what they called. They said, we're going to do a Jericho march. And I thought, I don't know if I'm down for this, but uh, we did it. We ended up marching around the inside of this auditorium, praising God and doing the whole thing. We had a blast. It was a total blessed and it was not the form of worship that we're used to but we got blessed anyway that's where i came into an understanding of what it must have been like no it wasn't like that at all for jericho for the guys to march around the city but think about the people inside the city looking out from the walls of the city you got this bunch of guys wandered around the city once a day for six days and these bunch of guys that are dressed kind of funny that are tooting their horns they're not doing anything but he says but on the seventh day I want you guys to march around it seven times. And when you're done, I want to have you, have the priest do a long blast of their horns and make it a long one. You know, just let it ring out. And then we're going to have the, all the people shout. They did that and the walls fell down. Go figure. Walking by faith. Again, you would have to look at this. I mean, we know the end from the beginning. We've read this before, many of us. And yet, this would require a little bit of effort to obey. It, it just would be odd to us. And so uh, that's how it went, and that's what they did. Uh, they obeyed God is essentially what it is, and the wall fell. That's why they're here. That's why this is listed in, in the, the, the hall of faith. Um, when I think about walls coming down, I, again, I think about strongholds. I think about areas of our lives. You know... It, 
I've encouraged you many times again, and, and, and again, I, I, I make no apologies for encourage you, encouraging you again. Don't try to imagine what God's will is for the person sitting next to you. Allow God to work in your heart. Allow him to tackle the strongholds in your life, because they're going to be different than the person that you're next to. And I'll tell you, I have learned over many years of walking with the Lord to just have grace, to say, Lord, I'm just bearing myself before you, work in me. I don't worry about him working in my wife. I don't worry about him working in my kids. I just don't worry about it. Because there's great value in submitting to him personally. Allow him to work in me. Allow him to do the work that only he can do. Trust him for the work in others. Sometimes hard, because sometimes people are abrasive. Sometimes people just rub us wrong, don't they? And yet, comfort, great relief, great freedom in trusting God, trusting God, having faith that God's got them in the palm of his hand and leave it there. Essentially, the point is, is if I can change you, somebody else could change you back. But when God changes a person, that's a whole different deal. Because he changes us from the inside out. That's not something that we can accomplish with one another. Verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So what had happened was Joshua, before they went and attacked Jericho, he sent two guys in, two spies, and, and he said, go spy out the whole land, but especially check out Jericho. And so the, the spies went and somehow they made it to Rahab's house. It doesn't tell us how. And they had a conversation with this prostitute. So remember, Rahab is a, she's a, a prostitute living in a godless society, but she, there was something different about her that marked her out. Uh, the king found out that the guys were there and he sent men uh, and told her to bring the men out. And, and I'm just summarizing here because we don't have time to go through the whole account. I, I totally encourage you to do it. I, I get caught up when I'm studying for this stuff. Pretty soon I'm like chapters away from where I was focused because I just get into reading it and it's just fun. But so what happened here is that she's having a conversation. The king finds out. She tells the, the guys that the king sends... Oh, they left. They're, they were going out the, the city when they closed the gates, because they closed these walled cities. They closed the gates at night, and, and it sends some guys after them. You might be able to catch them, is essentially what she says. And so the, they go, okay, and they, <laughs> they sent some guys out. And, and she had hidden the spies on the roof uh, among the flax, stalks of flax. And I, I don't know what that looks like, but anyway. So the point is, is that she had a conversation with these guys, uh, and she told them straight up, she said, we, us in Jericho, heard about you. We've heard what God did, and she uses the name Jehovah, or Yahweh, at the Red Sea, that he parted the sea. We saw what he did when you attacked the Ammonites. And our hearts are melting with fear, is what she says. Uh, 
But then she says something really interesting, and this is specifically why she is mentioned in this chapter. She says, For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And essentially what she's saying in that is He's the one that I trust. He's the one that I'm putting my faith in. So uh, she went on to say, ask if her she and her family could be spared. They made an oath with her and the whole scarlet cord being let down the window. They said, you know, if we see the cord, we'll know that we're good. And and the deal's off if you betray us. Uh, and the deal's off if anybody in your house is not in your house at that moment when we attack. Uh, their blood is on their own heads. But otherwise, we will keep the bargain, the deal that we made. And the other thing that's interesting about Rahab, it says in the narrative there, it says that her house was actually built on the wall of the city. And it doesn't say, but whenever I think about the walls of Jericho coming down, I think about this whole massive disaster, all of this crumble everywhere. And there's this nice little tidy piece of the wall that's still standing. And it doesn't say, like I said, but the only explanation is that Her house was spared, that she was the exception. How did that come about? By faith. She trusted God. She trusted God more than she trusted the people in the city to be able to defeat the Israelites. And so she's counted here. Uh, Interesting thing, she ends up, you want to talk about how, remember we talked about that the lineage for Messiah is not a straight line. It's not on, um, you know, ancestry totally, it, that the line twists and turns and goes these weird directions and stuff because God's illustrating that he's sovereign and he's going to use who he's going to use. And down through history, we see that proved out. Um, she was the mother. She ended up marrying one of the Israelis and they had a boy named Boaz. Those of you that know your Old Testament, you know who Boaz is. He was the guy that became kinsman redeemer. He was a type for Christ. He became the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Read the four chapter book of Ruth. It's a wonderful love story. Well, he's the guy. He's kind of the star of the show there. And and so Boaz ended up having a son. Uh, He and Ruth had a son and his name was Obed. Obed was King David's grandfather because his son was Jesse and that was David's dad. So what God is doing through this, he's using this hooker, sorry, but that's really what she was. He's using this hooker from a foreign country that, I mean, that the people despised. And he's using her, he's looping her and he's bringing her in because of her faith to the line of Messiah. Jesus would come from her line, from the line that she married into. And again, not trying to be crass, but I just love seeing the grace of God at work in the pages of the scripture. People talk about this. Oh, you don't see grace, the God's grace in the Old Testament. Oh, no, no, no. There is loads of grace. This is one of those gracious acts where God sovereignly brings this woman into a whole new life that her life was spared. And she went on to be counted not only as, and she's one of the most faithful. She's counted as one of the most faithful women in all of the scripture. So, great story about Ruth and about uh, David coming from her line and Boaz and all of that. Uh, again, it, it just speaks to the incredible grace of God. Other thing I think about this is that she was a, an obscure, relatively, I mean, unknown to them until that time, 
again, uh, you know, a prostitute in, in a, a city state that they were going to attack and all of that, uh, is never think that you're too insignificant, that you've sinned too greatly or that God can't use little old you because he can. Look what he did with this woman. Look what he's done with countless people throughout history. You know, something that bugs me sometimes is when I see Christians portrayed in the media, they find some kook. And it, yeah, that's a Bible word. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> they, they'll find some kook that's wearing an apron or a, you know, a, a sign on his chest and walking up and down the street or, you know, all of that. And they portrayed this kind of this weirdness as mainline Christianity. And, and yet that's what the world does. They look at it, and we'll talk about it, they celebrate that kind of thing. That's not a representation of the body of Christ. This is. I mean, a little church, a little church in a small town in Oregon, out, you know, in relative obscurity. And yet I love what the Word of God says in the book of Revelation. When, because when you look at what Jesus' attitude is, when he gets to the church at Philadelphia... He says, you're a little church. You have a little bit of power. But this, I I say, is you have kept my word. That's Christianity. That's what God looks at. That's what God honors. That's what God celebrates. It's faithful little flock like this. And, and you know, I, I pray that as we grow, that we are more faithful. I pray that if God has not gotten a hold of anyone's life here that he does, because that's the thing that he's looking for. It's it's the faithfulness of this harlot. It's the faithfulness of regular people. And that's the writer's point. Remember, he's writing to these persecuted Christians in the first century, and he's saying, look, I want to parade these people out. I want to show you a whole line all the way from Cain and Abel all the way through. Because I want I want you to understand that God's not forgotten about you. He, it's not that he is ignorant of your trials. It's not that he is insensitive to your pain. It's that he is working something deeper. Far deeper. Because he is raising up for himself a people that trust him. That's the dividing place for us. The point in all of this is you don't ever know how God's going to work through your faith. We don't. If you'd asked me after I got saved that God was going to have me be a pastor or a Bible teacher, you know, I was a, I was a journeyman sign painter. And I'll never forget walking across the, the grounds of the Bible college I was at. It was between semesters and, and I was essentially crying out to the Lord and I was under a lot of attack and I was going, what am I doing here, God? What, what are you, what am I, I'm assigned, I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't know anything about, I don't know nothing about nothing. And, and yet God just began to do this beautiful work in my heart, in my life. And that's what he wants to do in all of us. It's not, you don't have to be a pastor. God forbid that you ever try to do that and you're not called to it. But, do bloom where you're planted. Do what God has put for you to do. Serve him with a pure heart. Allow him to work in your heart because he has to work in you before he can work through you. That's the point. He had worked in Rahab and now he's working through her as he reaches these uh, these people in, in the narrative in the book of Joshua. So in verse 32, he says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to... The, 
tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. And I look at this, and now he's summarizing. He's saying, I, I really don't have time to go into detail in all these people's lives. Yet each one had to trust God. The point is, each one had to trust God in their own individual ways, because there were two a lot. You look, you read this whole chapter in one sitting, and I encourage that. Look at the diversity of the people that are mentioned. I mean, and I look out, and I look at you folks, and I look at the diversity. How could so many people come together in one room and actually like being around each other? And it's because we're a diverse bunch, but as people of faith, God knits our hearts. I look at the, the work that he's done. And these people, he, they all trusted that God was at work, even though they couldn't see it. Again, remember, we're talking about the seen world and the unseen world. The things that you see with your eyes, they'll fool you. Than the things you see with your heart. So when he talks about this, he, he, Gideon, uh, for instance, I'm just going to go through this quickly because we don't have time to, to go in, in depth on all of this. Um, he, he's essentially a faithless, cowardly teenager. It says that he's uh, threshing grain at the wine press. All right, that's very significant in that story, and you can miss it uh, if you're not paying attention, because if you thresh grain, you're at the top of a hill. That's where the wind blew. You threw the, you had a winnowing fork, you threw the grain up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff, the straw away, seeds would fall down, right? So he's threshing grain at a wine press. A wine press is at the bottom of the hill. You pack these big clusters of grapes down. And so he's down at the bottom of the hill, throwing grain up into the air, and the wind's not doing anything. But he's he's frightened. The Midianites were in the land, and he knows that they were oppressing Israel. It's during the time of the judges, it was a horrible time. Israel's national life just went up and down and all of that. And so the Lord appears to him, and he says, The Lord is with you. The angel of the Lord says, The Lord is with you, a valiant warrior. And I picture Gideon looking around and saying, Are you talking to me? Uh, and yeah, he was. But... God essentially said, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And Gideon's response was, my family is, I'm from the weakest tribe. Oh, and my family is the weakest family in the weakest tribe. And no, and, and, yeah, and, and again, you know that his posture is he's down in the bottom of the hill doing, trying to do the work and all of that. And he's the least likely candidate. But God loves to do that. Because by the time he's done, he takes, he starts with like 32,000 guys to, to go and attack the Midianites, and he pairs it down, and he pairs it down, and he pairs it down to where Gideon has 300 guys. And there's like 130,000 uh, of the enemy, and they do the clay pitchers around the camp, and I'm not going to go into the whole story, but essentially what God is doing is saying, Gideon, you need to trust me. And that's why he's listed here. Because he trusted God. Because he stepped out in faith. He couldn't do that unless you had faith that God was going to carry it off because you know you're marching in for your own suicide if you're doing this on your own. And yet, that's why he's here. Feel inadequate sometimes? I do. I'm telling you guys, in, in, in my less secure moments, I think, oh Lord, I'm not equipped to do this. 
I, I don't know what to do next. I don't know how to decide on this or that. And yet, as I seek him, as I pray, as I allow him to inform my thinking, as I allow him to work in my heart, he does the work. He says, you just show up. I'll do the work through you. I'll do the work in you. And then I'll do the work through you. There's such joy in that. I was having breakfast with a, another pastor this week and we were talking about the joy of the ministry. When you're secure in the fact that God has called you to do what it is that you're doing, when you're secure in the fact that, that this may not look like the way you thought it was going to look, and I am so fine with that. I am so good with being in the place where I know my wife and I know that God has called us here and he's called us to love you precious people. And, and, and we enjoy being loved by you. Don't get me wrong. It's not a one-way street. But there's just great joy in knowing. There's great joy for any of us that it, when we can know that God has called us to be a part of a body because truly, as we serve the Lord together, that's where synergy comes about. Synergy means that the, the sum is greater than the parts. The, actually, the word for co-laborers in the New Testament is synergos. And it's exactly what the Lord is, through the inspiration of the Spirit, saying that as we serve him together, as we come together as a body, that we're involved in something far greater than us. That's, and, and you can access, access that by faith. You can only access that understanding by trusting that he's got this, that this church belongs to him. You know, I, yeah, as in full-time ministry, I derive my living from doing this, but that's not why I'm here. I, I have jobs. I could do something that made a lot more money. <laughs> but the point is, is that I'm here because I trust that God's called me. I trust that he's working. I trust that he has raised me up to do this. And there's great joy in the ministry knowing that. I don't, and I don't rely on you folks. And I'll just say this. I don't rely on you folks for my living. I rely on the Lord. Yeah, giving is absolutely a spiritual principle. And and if you're not supporting the church financially, it's something that you should talk to the Lord about because that is part of it. Uh, millennials sometimes don't get that. But the point is, is that uh, that's part of it. But it's not because you're supporting me. It's because you're supporting the work. I trust God for my living. And, and and I trust that he's working in people's hearts and all of that. So uh, you guys know how I feel. I don't like making it, and I'm not making it about the money. That's why a year ago we suspended Pass of the Basket. Not that that's a bad thing. But the thought behind that is this is God's church. And if he wants it to go forward, we'll have the money to do it. If he doesn't, I'll go do something else. But I love the fact that it's by faith. We trust God. And I want... I, I want so much for you guys to understand that I have my areas where I'm weak in faith, but I want all of us to grow together because as we grow together, there's something that's greater than the sum of its parts. That's free. That wasn't in my notes. <laughs> he talks about Barack. I'm going to pick it up a little here. He talks about Barack, big, strong Colonel Barack. He was a military guy, but he wouldn't go anywhere without Deborah, the prophetess. Um, she was the brave one. And, uh, Barack respected her, though, and he trusted God. He trusted God with her, 
and God gave them mighty victory. And, and I love the song of Deborah. Have you ever seen that of Judges? That they, it's a, it's a worship song. They're singing praise to God for giving them the victory. That's faith. That's the result. It's the outcome of their faith. Samson. Oh, Samson. Judge Israel for 20 years and then totally messed up his life at the end of his career. Uh, living proof that it's never too late to mess up your life. <laughs> Had an affair with a Philistine prostitute named Delilah. But at the very end of his life, blind, held captive, he repented, he prayed, and he found the strength to take down the Philistines. You know, it was sort of a yay God moment. Cost him his life. But he was acting in faith. Uh, He had had faithless times. He had had miserable failures. I love the fact I mentioned before, God doesn't mention the failures of the people in this. And and there are great failures in the people that are mentioned here. But he's, again, the writer is bringing out, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that this is what a life of faith looks like. He commends, God commends him for his faith. Jephthah, talk about people that messed up. He made the most foolish vow ever recorded. Remember, he said, yeah, give us the victory and uh, whoever walks out the door will sacrifice him to the Lord. And his daughter walked out. And he gave her a couple of months to go and mourn. And then he carried out his vow. Horrible. Horrible. I, when I was reading and studying up for this this morning, guys, uh, uh, reading people get really critical that Jephthah is actually included in the chapter on faith. Yeah. Yeah. He was a broken guy. And he did some messed up things. And yet, in the end, he was faithful to God. Sounds like me. Sounds like you. Yeah, well, yeah, I didn't sacrifice the person who walked out the door. But I mean... We all have areas. And that's, again, that's the point. I love the fact that there are all these imperfect people that are mentioned here. And it's it's not celebrating sin. It's not celebrating being foolish. It's not celebrating being godless. But it is saying that God looks at faithfulness differently often than we do. And he's saying, that person I count as faithful because they trusted me. David, uh, King David, the longest story in the Bible, far from a perfect man. We know the stories. Um, we all know the problems he had. But God called him a man after my own heart because from his youth, David trusted God. That was the dividing line. He took God for his word and he trusted him. He trusted him through 10 years. On the, He gets anointed king and the guy's trying to kill him for 10 years. You know, well, this couldn't be God's will. I mean, after all, didn't he promise for you a prosperous life? No, he didn't promise that. He takes David to task very early on. But through that time, he was not only equipping David to be king, he was causing David to grow in faith, to grow in trust in God. Samuel, the great prophet. He was also, and I don't know if you know this, that Samuel was the last of the judges. He was considered one of the judges which they were rulers that were that were raised up for a period of time and and they judged Israel and I don't mean judgment I mean they judged they led the nation and Samuel was the the last of the judges and the first of the prophets 
in the in the classical sense of the word. I'm not going to go into all that. But the nation was terribly backslidden in his day. And Samuel is like a light in a really dark background because he trusted the Lord. He goes on and says the rest of the prophets, the, the, the guys that would say, thus says the Lord, and then they would speak whatever God had given them. They had to trust God. They had to walk by faith. They had to trust that the word that they got was from him in order to fulfill the ministries that they had. The point in all of this is we tend to delete all of these people's mistakes and problems. We idealize people in the Bible, especially. Don't do that. That's again, we miss the writer in Hebrews point. If we do that, if, because, you know, if the same thing applied to our lives, we would look like rock stars. Every one of us. I don't want to look like a rock star. I want to look like a sinner saved by grace. They were just plain men and women like you and me. In the same way that God does, does with us, he, he's using extraordinary or ordinary people to do extraordinary things. That's what he's doing here. That's why these people are listed. They're ordinary folks. The point in all of this, the writer's bringing out is that God requires trust. He requires not just mental assent. I believe in God and go on my way, live for myself, but he requires a trust that is the sort of trust that causes us to conform our lives to him and to his agenda and to what he's doing, to see into that unseen realm and to, to allow our lives to be dictated and directed through that as opposed to the seen realm, the things that we see around us. Verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, that means administered justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Uh, think about Joshua and David. They were guys that were military guys. They subdued kingdoms, uh, administered justice. And remember, after the nation divided, now the, there were kings in the north and kings in the south. There was not one king in the north that was a good king. But there was some good kings of the south uh, that did administer judge, judge, justice and they, they would attempt to get Israel back on course with God's program. And that would go for a while and then a, a wicked king would come and the whole thing would get taken back down. That's why God judged them. That's why they got carted off into captivity. But there were kings that were sincere that wanted to administer justice. And that's what the writer's evidently talking about here. Um, stop the mouths of lions. Think about Daniel there. Uh, verse 34, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, and turned to flight the armies of aliens or foreigners. He's going through a whole litany of people here. This is the cloud of witnesses. This is the people, these are the people that he's parading in front of the first century believers so that they would get that they're not the only ones who have gone through hard times. He wants to direct their attention backwards, apply it to their life presently, so that as they walk forward, they're walking in stronger degrees of faith. That's exactly what God does with us. That's exactly what happens when we go through trials, when we go through heartaches, when we go through stresses. God says, look at the faithfulness I've had in your life. Look at the things. I love the passage in Isaiah, guys. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and look to the pit from which you were dug. I love that because I know that my life was dug from a pit. I don't know about you, 
but I'm honest about it. And, and yeah, but I look to the rock from which I was hewn because the moment that I gave my life to Christ, I'm a new creation. I don't have to worry about that old life. That guy's dead. I'm crucified with Christ and I die daily. I love those things that Paul says. Do I always get that right? No, of course not. But that's the desire of my heart to walk by faith, to know that it's looking forward. It's not looking back. It's not looking it's not looking at all of that. Uh, it's just such freedom again in that. When he talks about violence of fire, you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there in the the, the oven with Daniel and all, and uh, escape the edge of the sword. David, weakness made strong. I, I, the writer doesn't say specifically who he's talking about then, but I think about Paul in Second Corinthians twelve. He talks about the thorn in the flesh that he was received that, uh, from the, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, that I wouldn't be exalted. And he talks about when I'm weak, God is strong. The point in all of that is when we see ourselves as weak, we by faith more easily can draw upon the strength of God. When we're walking in our own strength, the last thing we're going to do, the last thing that our natural inclination is going to be is to try to draw on God's strength. But as we go through these things, we see that hardship and trial. They're part of what God does in our lives. They are central. It's, this is not optional stuff. This is central stuff. You will go through it. And what happens when we go through it, when our heart is torn up, when our heart is broken, when our heart is grieved, when our heart is in pain, the Lord wants so much to take that and use that to draw us closer to him. He does pour out mercy and compassion on our lives. And he does use those things to conform us to the image of his son. He's working all the time and he's always working ahead of us. That's a very comforting thing. When you realize, when you, when you get out of this looking at the circumstances, out of looking at the physical and understand what's happening in the spiritual is far greater, far greater. Verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better better resurrection. So think about Elijah, he raised the the widow's son. Remember that Uh, Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman. And he says others were tortured. Now, interesting here in verse 35, there's a shift. As we progress, there's a notable transition that others did not experience uh, a miracle in their deliverance. He's talking about these people who, who had miraculous deliverances. And then he starts to go down the road of not everybody. Uh, he, he says that these people remain steadfast in their faith in God. They experienced the worst that the world could offer and remained faithful. That's his point there. Why? Because they believed in the resurrection. They believed that this life is not it. There were two things that the Jews... Now, remember, everybody he's writing to, all these people, except for like Rahab, and then she kind of, she was blended in. But he's writing primarily to Jews. He's writing about Jews. The people that are in this chapter are Jewish. There were two things that they looked forward to. Number one, they looked forward to Messiah. Even Abraham would have some at least abstract understanding that there was one that was going to come that would fulfill the promises that God gave to him. And so what the first century 
Jewish Christians would understand is that the two things that God had promised, as we look at the promises of God here as we go forward, is that number one, Messiah would come. They were looking for Messiah. Those that missed it still are. Israel's still looking for Messiah. And that's a whole different study. But the point is, the second thing that they were looking for is for Messiah to set up his kingdom, that the people would be ruled once more by God. Remember, up until then, way early on, when Israel demanded a king and they got Saul, God wanted to be their ruler. He wanted to be the one that governed Israel. He wanted to be the one that governed his people. And they were looking for the kingdom to be restored in that sense. It didn't happen. It didn't happen in these people's lives. The writer is writing about it wasn't happening in the first century Jewish Christians' lives because they expected Jesus would have returned by now. So he's, again, he's tagging these things. He's wanting them to identify, look, you're not the only one that hasn't inherited the promises. You're not the only one that it hasn't gone the way that you expected it to go. And it drives me absolutely bonkers when I turn on television or I read or I see something where people are promoting this cheap, phony gospel that says that God's going to give you a cushy life. And if you just put your trust in him, he's going to prosper you financially or he's going to prosper you, or he's going to heal every illness. Hog wash. That is not true. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the program that he's advancing. That's a program that that appeals to the flesh, to the natural man, to the person who doesn't know Christ, and people are duped. Sorry, I get angry about that because I see so much of that going on. Christianity in many areas is being rewritten right before our eyes. And unless we stick with this, unless we are people who stand on the word of God, we can get caught up in that nonsense. And that's what it is. Be strong in the Lord, guys. Be strong in him. Be strong in his word. And you won't get duped. So these people, he's talking about the shift here. He's talking about these people that that are going through really tough stuff and it doesn't get resolved. And the question is why? Because they believed that there was something greater. They believed in the resurrection. They believed that God was going to take care of it at the end, in, in the final analysis of things. And it may not be in this life. Many of the first century Christian Hebrews were in the same category. Many in our era are in the same place. I don't have the answer. But I know that God does, and I so I rest in that. That's the point. In their case, God was glorified in not delivering them. Say it again. God was glorified in not delivering them. That's the opposite of a lot of the stuff you see out there. Uh, the point is the absence of deliverance is not due to a lack of faith. The absence of deliverance is not due to a lack of faith. I have actually stood and watched a pastor put that on somebody one day. Well, your wife died of cancer because you didn't have enough faith. And I wanted to get into the flesh. I'm telling you, I just about unloaded on the guy. I was like, what, are you serious? What are you trying? You know, this poor guy's bleeding out over here. His wife of decades is gone. And you're telling him it was his fault? No, no. Reject that. Reject that whole line of thinking, folks. It's very unhealthy. Uh, and, and, and that God doesn't deliver is not an indicator of a lack of faith. Ack. <laughs> Verse 36. Okay, I better move on here. 
still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. So the people were scorned and ridiculed. I mean, you see what happened with Jesus. Uh, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. Uh, extra biblical information says that was Isaiah, don't know. They were tempted, they were slain with the sword. You see how that shifted? All of a sudden now he's talking about people, there's no resolution. These people are dying here. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. I love that. I love that. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. All of these, the writer is saying, put their trust, place their faith in God. Throughout history, the world, unregenerate man, honors some of the most despicable people. Yet the unnamed faithful mentioned here and countless others wouldn't find honor in the world, but they do with God. He honors his own. He honors faithfulness. Verse 39, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. They were commended for their faith, but they didn't receive the promise. Those two things. They all died in faith. Uh, Verse 13, remember we looked at that a few weeks ago. It says that these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. These are people that are not walking by sight. These are people that are seeing something beyond this life. They're seeing something beyond the physical realm. And that's the writer's point. So the question is, what was promised them? First, the coming of the anointed one, the sent one, the Messiah. Um, The second is that when Messiah came, he'd set up his kingdom. They all believed that someone would come and and that they would serve him and that God would rule humanity once more the way it was meant to be. And that, by the way, folks, is yet to happen. Because in the millennium, in the millennial reign, reign of Christ, when he returns and he sets up his kingdom, he will set up, Messiah is coming back and he will set up his kingdom and he will rule and reign from Jerusalem, the Bible says, with a rod of iron. That is yet to take place. These promises that these people looked at back there, yes, we have seen the realization of the promises. We look back on the fulfillment of the promise of Messiah because we know that that's what he did 2,000 years ago. And yet when he comes to set up his kingdom, they thought he was going to set up his kingdom then. But he had a, he had a, a, a greater thing to accomplish in atoning for sin. And so when he does come back, these things, the promises that Israel was looking for, will be completely fulfilled. It didn't happen in their lives because God had a better plan. That's the point. Verse 40. God having provided something better for us, Jesus himself, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The Old Testament believers didn't go directly to heaven. They they understood that. They they went to Abraham's bosom or to Sheol or to, yeah, to Sheol. There were compartments for the dead. And and, and I don't want to get into, we're just about out of time. But they didn't go, they understood. They didn't go straight to heaven. We do. 
And yes, I know. The Bible says two things. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And also talks about people who sleep. And, and the only way you can reconcile that is if you remove time. Remember, time is a construct that God owns. He created. You're going to get to a point in trying to think that through. I call it popping breakers. You, you can only go so far because you're trying to wrap a finite mind around a, an infinite concept. And, and we can only go so far with that. It does reconcile when you get to the point of saying, okay, Lord, I'm just going to trust you on that. Both are taught, both are true. The point here is that these people in the Old Testament understood that death was not immediately in the presence of God. And that when Jesus died, he went to the lower parts of the earth. Oh boy, rabbit trail big time there. But he led high a host of captives that he emptied Abraham's bosom. He emptied that place. So their faith looked forward to the promise of Messiah. Our faith looks back at historic facts, things that actually have already taken place. As we wrap up this morning, I want to mention uh, uh, three things here. The first is that trials are wearisome. I'm going to read something out of Jeremiah chapter 12. God, Jeremiah was going through a lot. When I think of Jeremiah, I think, okay, here's this prophet, a reluctant prophet, but here's this prophet that um, he's kind of known for for whining at times. (laughs) And he had been whining to God about all the trials he was going through. And God responds to him in chapter 12. He says, Jeremiah, if you've run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? In other words, this is a sort of God's way of saying, Jeremiah, suck it up. <laughs> and and it, it's true, folks. I mean, it, trials are hard. They're wearisome. He was weary. He went 45 years and there was no fruit in his ministry. Think about that. That everywhere you go, people mock you and they abuse you. And, I mean, for decades. He had reason to get down at times. Is saying essentially, look, I know you're going through it, but you've got to realize this is a proving ground. If if you can't run, if you've run with the footmen and they've weird you, how can you contend with horses when the real battle comes? You need to be securing your faith now, so that when the trials come, you don't get worn out, you don't get overwhelmed, you don't get tackled and you don't get knocked off your pins. It's just good advice. It's not being insensitive. It's not saying suck it up. I tease when I say that. It's saying that God knows the situation, the circumstances that we go through. And as we, by faith, embrace that and see the bigger picture, our lives are not overwhelmed. We're, we're able to run with the footmen. And then when the big trials, when the heavy guns come out, when the really tough stuff comes... We're able to say, Lord, I want to look for you in this. He gives another example. He says that if in a land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? How will you do when the, when the battle really breaks out? So, uh, the point is, he's saying, there's more coming. And in, in, in Jeremiah's case, he, I'm not going to read it, but he, God goes on. He says, look, even your brothers are plotting against you. Your brothers are they are planning treachery against you. You think you've got trials now? Wait till you see what's around the bend. 
And he was essentially challenging Jeremiah to strengthen his faith, to strengthen his trust in what God was going to do. Second thing here is don't get stuck. Or if you already are, consider getting unstuck. Israel came out of Egypt by faith. They didn't go into the land because of unbelief. Folks, I I have known Christians, and I don't have anybody in mind, I guarantee, and, and I've known Christians that have come out. Egypt is a type for the world. They've come out of the world. Canaan is a type for the promises of God. The writer's talking about the promises of God here, that these people in the first century were at risk of, of, yeah, they were Christians. Yeah, they had come out of the world. But if they weren't going in, they would get stuck. And they could get stuck in this place where you've come out, but you're not going in. It's sort of a picture of a carnal Christian, or somebody that says, oh yeah, I'm a believer, I, I trust God, uh, but really doesn't trust in his promises and says, you know, I'm going to appropriate those, I'm going to apply this to my life. I'm going to say, God, you said it. I believe it. That's it. That settles it. I'm going to walk that way. I'm going to live that way. Don't get stuck. If you are stuck, get unstuck. You know what that looks like? Repent. Agree with God. Change your mind about the challenges that you're facing. Understand that God is in control, that he has it, that he didn't He didn't get up this morning. He doesn't sleep, but he didn't get up this morning and go, oh, I forgot about so-and-so. No, he knows it. Like he did with Israel at the Red Sea. He boxed him in on purpose. Are you feeling boxed in? Are there things in your life that you don't get, that you don't understand? Pay attention. Look to the immaterial. Look to the, the spiritual. Look to him for the answers. Put your trust in that. Let the weight of your life down on that. Don't get boxed in. Don't get stuck. The third thing is part of living by faith is not receiving Yet, but still trusting. That's the writer's point here. These people hadn't received the people he's talking about in the Old Testament. They hadn't received the promises. We've looked at that for weeks. Maturity, folks, maturing in Christ is understanding that living by faith is not receiving yet. It will happen. He is going to wrap all of this up. One day, we'll be in the presence of God for eternity. And we will look back on this life and say, yeah, it was a vapor. It didn't feel like a vapor at the time. It felt like a drudge. It felt horrible. It felt pressed in. It felt oppressed. It felt painful. And those are real things that we go through. I'm not minimizing that. But understand, we don't always receive relief from our circumstances. We will I love to say God heals every disease, without fail, every single one. There's some he waits until he takes this body away from us to do so. Because some will only be healed through death of this body. These people were trusting. That's the writer's point. Got a whole list of people. This cloud of witnesses was trusting God. They were trusting him with their lives. When their lives very often were at stake, they were people with failures. They were people with problems. They were people with hang-ups. They were people with goofy personalities at times. I mean, there was this, this whole list that we've looked at for six weeks. 
is the cloud of witnesses that he's talking about when he goes into chapter 12. And in chapter 12 and chapter 13, just a preview, the writer now takes all the saying and, and just starts to apply, apply, apply to the people's lives. Great application for us. Can't wait to get there. So some in this chapter we would see as really sinful. Another thought here. They experienced miracles and triumphs even with a little bit of faith in God. Others were very godly. We see really godly people here and very committed to the Lord. And they experienced some of the same or the greatest tragedies even. The point is, this is a great reminder that God is sovereign. He is the sovereign Lord of not just the universe, which he is, but he's the sovereign Lord of the life of whoever has put their faith, let their life down on him. And that in his sovereignty, he knows what's best. If we don't understand the sovereignty of God, then we can question. Lord, why did you take that person? Lord, why did that disease happen to that person? Why did this thing happen to that person? Why, Lord, why? you got to understand that he is sovereign and that he has our life marked out. When you understand that, then you can more readily accept the circumstances that you're in. And when you accept the circumstances that you're in, guess what? You're not going to have the pain that you had before that. That's what he's doing. That's the end of this thing called faith, trusting him. Remember the writer, this entire exercise is the writer is wanting to get them to look back on the people that have gone before and then by faith embrace the circumstances they were in and in doing so to be able to look forward to the hope that lies ahead. You see, past, present, future. We look to God's past faithfulness, we apply that, and we and, and in that context, we can look forward with hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, oh, this, this uh, Hebrews 11. What a fabulous chapter. And, and Lord, uh, I'm just uh, grateful that you...